Hey listeners, welcome to Akio Politics, a podcast about politics in the world of Harry Potter. I'm Erin. And I'm Adri. We are two recovering English majors. Today we'll be discussing the politics of good intentions. In Chapter 2, Dobby's Warning of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Hey listeners, welcome back. So today we're going to be talking about the politics of good intentions. But before we deep dive, Adriana, can you give us our customary summary recap? Of course. So Dobby tries to persuade Harry not to go back to Hogwarts. And who is Dobby? It's the creature that was sitting on top of Harry's bed. So while they're conversing, Harry learns about house elves. But Dobby keeps punishing himself as Harry is trying to, you know, learn more about Dobby, why Dobby is there. And then he finds out that Dobby has been intercepting Harry's letters. Harry doesn't agree to stay away from Hogwarts. And then Dobby makes the pudding levitate and crash into the floor in front of Harry. Harry receives the letter for using magic outside of Hogwarts. He no longer has power over the Dursleys. They lock him in his room, even going so far as to putting bars in his window. The chapter closes with him seeing Ron out of his window after waking up from a really creepy dream. So stressful. This chapter is so stressful. I I love Dobby and through the series, I my love for him just grows exponentially. But our first meeting with him so stressful and my I like the first time I read this as a young girl I just remember being so uncomfortable because this incident is the exact kind of thing that would set me personally like over the edge do you know what I mean it's just like it's it's too much it's a nightmare upon upon first meeting Dobby is kind of the worst exactly exactly he is kind of the worst which again is how we're framing our discussion today around the politics of good intentions and what that means and like why don't we talk a little bit about that politic and some current events that we see operating before we dig into the weeds of the chapter what do you got for me all right so i want to start off by saying that even the people we disagree with the most don't see themselves as fucking monsters. And that really frustrates me sometimes. And other times I'm just like, well, people are flawed and no one likes to admit that they're fucking terrible, right? Like, I'm sure Lena Dunham doesn't wake up and say, like, I'm a fucking monster and I'm setting back feminism, like, 400 years, right? But, you know, (laughs) yet here she is opening her mouth and saying shit that she had knows nothing about, right? Um, Right. Uh, And we see that with politicians as well. Like when they probably, you know, start their journey into politics, they may not see themselves as just being power hungry, like two dimensional villains. Um, Not everyone is, you know, Voldemort or, you know, or I don't know, like, I think we have this tendency of portraying people we don't agree with and people who do terrible, horrible things as these just two-dimensional beings when in reality, they 
oftentimes think that they have the best intentions at heart, even though the politics that are operating are not what they think are good intentions. So I want to start our framing of our conversation of good intentions by saying, yeah, people do fucking terrible things. But at the end of the day, I would wager that 95% in their heart of hearts think that they have the, the best of intentions. That doesn't mean that they're right, though. I'm so glad that you're bringing this up. And if I can if I can hop in on the conversation, like it, you're exactly right. And and I want to talk about this idea of the two dimensional character and good versus evil, because, again, in Harry Potter, like the examples that you're giving, <clears throat> especially with Voldemort, it is very clear who's good, who's bad and who you're supposed to kind of root for. And more importantly, it's also clear that Voldemort acknowledges his evil, he's conscious and cognizant of it. And so back to your point, you know, you're you're like, you crack me up, Adriana. You're talking about how people won't acknowledge when they're being monstrous and that being frustrating because we don't live in a fictional world where our villains are so clearly defined, but it comes back to this idea of intentionality. And there's an author, well, he's actually a philosopher. His name is John Searle and John R. Searle. And he had this book called Intentionality and essay in the philosophy of the mind and he distinguishes intentionality or he defines intentionality as this sort of conscious act so when we talk about intention or intentionality it's a conscious aim or plan it suggests that we are aware of the actions or behaviors that we're taking and we're doing it in most cases, like you're pointing out, in sort of the good conscience, because we think that we're operating in the right based off of whatever values, beliefs, you know, et cetera, that we hold to ourselves. But those intentions can have really dire consequences if we're not thinking about our intentionality beyond our own agenda. Well, and, and what happens is with intentions is that we focus on one thing without fully understanding context, and then we fail to follow up with our actions into the consequences that those actions have that we did not intend for. Right, right, what we didn't intend for. I'm really glad that you put that, that wording together, what our intentions are and then the unintended consequences. And with that, do you have an example of some unintended consequences from some good intentions? So I don't want to talk about something like, you know, the scam GOP, like tax break, trickle down economics bullshit, because I'm pretty sure they've done that. that, Right. Like, I'm pretty sure that even if they're in their heart of hearts, um, the GOP believes that trickle down economics is a real thing. It's been proven time and time again that that is not a real thing, right? So, so I, I, don't, I don't have time for that shit. So instead... None of us do, listeners. <laughs> I want to talk about, <laughs> I wanna talk about um, a report from uh, New York One, and it's that food banks are struggling to meet demands after SNAP cuts. So SNAP is um, like a federal aid to to people living in poverty to get benefits that include food, right? So what this report unearths is that people, so people, so SNAP was cut because people like 
you know, mostly conservative people feel like a good way to incentivize the economy and poor people into the workforce is to cut their benefits. And so, and so that they could say like, oh, we don't have our benefits anymore. I guess if I want to eat, I have to work, which is like a flawed argument anyway. I'm just, I, can, I cannot deal with that. But even with those intentions of like, where we're going to cut the SNAP benefits, we're going to save money, and then we're going to incentivize people to get jobs, what they weren't prepared for is that, one, food pantries cannot keep stock anymore because the cutting of SNAP benefits has an economic impact on supermarkets and on nonprofit organizations that were also supplementing uh, people that receive these benefits, right? So what ends up happening is that even though the SNAP cuts were designed to incentivize people to go get jobs or whatever, whatever was the case in those good, pure intentions those people had, or, you know, alleged good intentions, it ends up hurting the economy and it ends up hurting um, small businesses or even large businesses that you know, sell food like supermarkets and nonprofits. And then that comes back to an issue of waste and not, you know, like you're saying, they can't hold stock because they're not having the same demand for the supply that they have. And then you, what happens to those products in those supermarkets? You know, are those goods then being filtered out to be used? Likely not. And so are they just being thrown away? So it's definitely a flawed system. Definitely. And so so these uh, federally funded programs are injecting money into the economy where that money does not exist. And they don't I think they don't see that and they don't see how those actions create a chain reaction that could put more people at stake of losing their jobs. So if those supermarkets or pantries or things that, you know, employ some people do not get the money they need in order to keep the operation running, then those people are also going to suffer, lose their jobs. And you are creating like this economic continuum of, yeah, yeah, a downward spiral. Yes. Right. 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 Exactly. Exactly. So, so um, there's obviously like a humanitarian argument for these federal benefits. And I'm not arguing that. What I am saying is that if you're purest of pure intentions, is not based on the humanitarian actions of providing people with SNAP benefits or with food stamps, however, however they're called in your state, right? If you're not, if you're just worried about like, oh, let's cut spending or, oh, um, I'm worried about small businesses and, and all these other things, then you're unintentionally hurting those people you're trying to protect and also creating a humanitarian crisis. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, right. So I don't, you know, like what happens with good intentions is you can have the best intentions in the world, but if you don't have a thought out plan, then it's, or, and if you don't have context as to how to solve the problem in, in that area, then you're n- not going to be successful and there's going to be unintended consequences. I, no, I'm really glad that you brought that article up and um, kind of riffing off of that, the article that I want to bring up. Um, so with your example, you know, 
we kind of have to say like alleged intentions, right? Because yeah, that's, we're being told like, oh, this is coming from a, a, you know, like you were saying, a a place of good intention or making these cuts. It will have this impact to protect these people. But, you know, we're, we're, we're making uh, a leap assuming that, and especially when it comes to economics, I think that, um, too often like economics is seen as void of like the human component do you know well but what i would counter with that is that it's been psychologically proven that people will go to any leaps in psychological bounds to prove that they're not monsters so you can rationalize yourself like yeah no no i have the best intentions and I'm not saying people do have actual good intentions. I'm saying that they believe they do. No, no, exactly. And I don't mean to diverge from your point. What I mean to say is that in your example, because um, I'm going to compare it to the example that I'm going to give in my article, like we have to, again, take, well, and I guess this actually applies in my example too. Like we have to take these um, individuals or even these groups um, and their alleged good intentions for their word or at their word. And in my example, this comes to us from Bustle, uh, and it's titled, Men, quote, wonder if hugging women is still okay, end quote, according to an article now getting roasted on Twitter. (laughs) And the point of the article is basically that there was a Twitter thread that got started around whether or not it was acceptable to still hug women in the workplace or ask, you know, oh, you look really, or say, you know, things like, oh, you look really nice today. And somebody was just like, you know, because the article that, that, that got tweeted from CBS Los Angeles was, in the wake of Weinstein, men wonder if hugging women is still okay. And so you have the implication of like this good intention from like wanting to hug people, you know, like, oh, hug is a nice thing. Like that's, you know, that, that's, that's a nice thing to do. Um, and whatever your intentionality is, it's still physical contact. And so somebody tweeted back, men, how will we know if women want us to hug them? Women, you could ask us, men, it's a mystery forever. And so <laughs> coming back to good intentions and consciousness and context it's a matter too, I think, of having a conversation and not and trying to see a continuum in the way that we were talking about, not just having a one-sided perspective. So it's not about whether or not you get to hug somebody in the workplace. It's whether or not somebody wants to be hugged in the workplace or anywhere for that matter. Well, and again, with the politics of good intentions, what I think is paramount to keep repeating over and over again is that context is important and context is key. And if you're not willing to be open to understanding the context of other people, then you cannot by any means 100% say that you have best intentions in mind when you do not want to understand the reality of their situation. Which then makes them kind of the worst. Exactly. Like Lena Dunham. <laughs> like Lena Dunham. Yeah. I, kind of the worst. I'm sorry. Kind of the if worst. If you like Lena Dunham, I'm sorry, but like your fave is really problematic. We can't be friends. You can't sit with us. <laughs> <laughs> As we cackle. <laughs> I know. I do have a cackly laugh. It's so true. It's, it's okay. so true. So do I. That's why we're friends. It's yeah, and and it comes out, you know, 
again, like talking about different public spaces in the workplace, you know, I laugh. Uh, my unfiltered laugh is a cackle. And so sometimes I catch people like off guard. They're just like, what is that banshee doing? I'm just like, I'm so sorry. Well, you know, it's just because you're deceptive. You're deceptive. Like you do not look like someone who would cackle. And I appreciate that so much. And neither do you. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a little bit more believable from me, but cool. Cool. <laughs> Oh, man. So, okay. (laughs) Go ahead. No, you take it. You take it. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. So we talked about our articles and everything is fine and everything is great in the world. Just kidding. Everything is garbage. But anyway, uh, how do we see the politics of good intentions operating in this chapter, Erin? Well, I think for me, again, and this is the obvious tension, but it's between Harry and Dobby. And for me, if I were to kind of, I mean, we're going to hash this out in this episode, but I'm going to, I'm going to lean on Harry a little bit and say that I see Dobby as sort of representing um, the politics of good intentions in this chapter in the way that he appears from the magical world into the muggle world, which is already a space that he shouldn't be occupying, Um, not even just by virtue of his enslavement, which is hashtag problematic, but um, just by virtue of the, the, the rules of the wizarding world. And so he comes into Harry's space, a space that he shouldn't be in, unaware of Harry's context, and again, like, to Harry's benefit, and again, Dobby has no way of knowing this in his defense, but in Harry's benefit, you know, Harry is a first year, he just finished his first year at Hogwarts, like, the rules and, you know, sort of things and cultural whatever's that belong to the wizarding world he's just learning about them and magical creatures are kind of a new thing and so Dobby like he doesn't even know what to do with him and so oh go ahead well I I want to interject very quickly yes because I feel like even though we're not talking about this this episode um we also need to discuss the reason why Harry might not have known about Dobby and it's because the more disgusting areas of our history, the more uh, problematic, exploitative areas of our history are the ones that we are not shown in school. It is not part of our indoctrination. It is not part of the popular talk. Now, this are, this is a changing a little bit with like the internet and the way that information is shared across digital platforms, but it's not something that we are indoctrinated into in our official uh, school or in our official culture, unless you have parents that are activists or very outspoken like mine were. Um, I if, if had I had it not been for my parents, I would have not known about a lot of things, uh, about, you know, Puerto Rico, the world, imperialism, colonialism, things like that. So I don't think it's surprising that Harry doesn't know. I don't think it would even be surprising if Harry didn't know by year six, you know, because these are not things that are discussed or are part of the popular discourse because of the exploitative nature of slavery and enslavement or even indentured servitude. So 
we, we don't want to reckon with the bad parts of our society. Oh, I love that you're bringing this up. And it, you know, what you're saying also makes me think about the fact that as readers, this is actually our first time being introduced to a half-elf as well. Like this creature is just as foreign to us as it is for Harry. And that's because even the subject of house elves doesn't really get taken up thoroughly until book four. And, you know, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but basically in that same way that you're talking about there not being visibility on these issues and the and representation of groups or people in curriculum, you know, it's not representative in the text itself, nor is it representative in the narrative that we've been given of the world itself. Like Harry hasn't Harry hasn't had a conversation with other students. They haven't seen other house elves, you know, and it's kind of like this. But for those wizards like Ron or Draco who have lived in the wizarding world, you know, we're going to come to find that they actually know about house elves. But it's like you're talking about it's like this dirty secret that we don't we know about, but we don't talk about it. Right. But it's the invisibility of servitude. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, just happen. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Like, so we know later on that house elves make the food at Hogwarts, but in the dinner, in the beginning of the series, the, ha- the, the house elves aren't just like propping up and bringing you food. The food just magically oh, right, appears. Right, 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 so right, right. It's, it's talking about like that invisibility of servitude, that invisibility of exploitation. Like, the clothes you buy at H&M are not made by, like, well-paid workers. But you're just buying, like, that $15 shirt that's kind of trendy and going, like, this is a really good price. But you're failing to see the exploitation behind it. And I think, uh, I think we can also make a, a stretch to, you know, factory farming practices and, you know, the treatment of animals when we talk about our food supply and demand too. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's all an invisible thread because Mm -hmm. we never want to think about exploitation and how we're feeding into this exploitation because we cannot afford any better or because we choose not to afford any better. Right. And that's what I mean when I say that it's like the dirty secret that doesn't get discussed. It's like the, like the Malfoys and the, uh, Weasleys of the Wizarding World, even though, of course, like we know that the Weasleys don't have a house elf um, as a matter of, you know, either I'd like to think character, but it, it could also be economics, um, frankly. Um, they're aware of the they're aware of this invisible force that is keeping not just Hogwarts, but frankly, like the Wizarding World going, um, especially in higher class families. But it, again, it's just not talked about for that exact reason that you're saying. We don't want to talk about exploitation. We don't want to talk about abuse. And we definitely don't want to talk about how we feed into those things. Yeah. And we're all complicit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what about you? How do you see the politics of good intentions operating in this chapter? <laughs> so after derailing with my rants, which, you know. <laughs> but they're spot on. They're so necessary, Adriana. Always, always fun, listeners. Um, I want to go back once again, and I'm boring everyone as I'm saying this, that both Harry and Dobby, we see this in both Harry and Dobby not understanding each other's contexts, therefore making things worse for each other. And so we see that as Harry just like asking so many questions that set off Dobby, which has the unintended consequence of like alerting Vernon that something is happening. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. So you're just like perpetuating this cycle through like good intentions and you're like punishing yourself when you didn't mean to punish yourself. And Dobby not understanding Harry's context and therefore like perpetuating like this like this stubbornness in Harry of like, no, I'm not going to Hogwarts. Don't you understand how fucking horrible it is here? And Dobby's like, then fuck you. I'm going to like make life miserable for you and you're never going to go back. And Dobby not understanding that maybe Harry is in more danger if he stays with the Dursleys. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. It's, you know, it reminds me of a Blake poem. Um, (laughs) uh, Where, oh God, what is that? What is that fucking poem? I can see like his image, his sketching, but it's like two characters that are talking directly past each other. Like they're voicing their innermost thoughts and feelings, but they're and they're staring right at each other. Like they're talking to each other, but their inability to move outside of their own context prohibits them from actually hearing one another or understanding. And that's totally Harry and Dobby right now. Like they're just unable to understand each other's context and where they're coming from. So their good det- intentions are disastrous. our deep dive quotes Erin what do you have for us today so as you mentioned in your summary recap earlier Harry is really put out that he hasn't gotten any letters from his friends this is like really affected his summer um but he finds out that in fact Dobby has been taking them as part of his plan to again like help Harry by not going to Hogwarts where something super terrible is going to happen to him so quote See what it's like here, he said. See why I've got to go back to Hogwarts? It's the only place I've got. Well, I think I've got friends. Friends who don't even write Harry Potter, said Dobby slyly. I expect they've just been... Wait a minute, said Harry, frowning. How do you know my friends haven't been writing to me? Dobby shuffled his feet. Harry Potter mustn't be angry with Dobby. Dobby did it for the best. Have you been stopping my letters? Dobby has them here, sir, said the elf. So this is when Dobby hands over, you know, the letters kind of meekly or whatever. And it's like a whole stack of them from Ron and Hermione. So they have, in fact, been writing to him all summer. Lo and behold, like Harry's, you know, whole summer of teensy or pre-teensy angst in his defense like comes to a halt and he realizes that like he in fact does have friends but Dobby through his good intentions doesn't know kind of the psychological impact that not getting those letters has had on him and just like how isolated he has been both mentally and physically so that's why I chose that quote as my deep dive Erin, your quote makes me think of how sometimes people who say they have the best intentions or who have good intentions do things that that are by other means just cruel. Like, and I say this like people withholding things from other people saying, no, 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 you can't have that. You'll thank me later. You'll see. Like, um, that idea of uh, cutting public benefits like SNAP 
would be mm-hmm. like, no, no, right. I am doing oh, this for your yeah. own good. You will thank me later. You will see. I have the best intentions. So people who tend to have like, quote unquote, good intentions, uh, start with holding things from people, whether it's taking money away or punishing them in some way. Like this idea of incarceration as reformation for uh, small time drug busts or any small time act of criminality is supposedly done with the best of intentions, but has oftentimes the unintended consequence of uh, creating criminals or, or somehow fucking up with people's minds enough so that they're not the same people they went in as and not in the best way, you know? And in both of these examples, it's that conscious decision to attempt to use withholding as a way of policing behaviors into actions that you are you want. desiring. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So and in this case, oops, go ahead. Go ahead. So um, also in this idea of policing behavior, it's the idea that you can take someone else's free will away from them because you know better than they do. Right. And we're not, exactly. we're not talking about parents. Like parents are allowed to do that to a point, right? Until their their children come of age. Like parents or guardians can make those decisions. And sometimes they're not the best decisions, but legally they can, you know? Right. But I'm talking about later on or or people who are not parents or guardians or, or any kind of figure in people's lives that take away the free will of people into coercing them to do something that they would do instead when not everyone has the same outlook on life or context or circumstances. Yeah, no, totally, totally. So what about you? Does that relate at all to your deep dive quote that you chose? So my deep dive comes after Harry's like, no, I am still going to Hogwarts. You don't understand. This is really horrible here. You don't know me. You don't know my life. (laughs) You don't know my life. You can't tell me what to do. (laughs) Snap, snap. Um, (laughs) um, So it says, uh, it's on page 19 on the Scholastic uh, First Edition. And it says, uh, Dobby gave him a tragic look. Then Dobby must do it, sir, for Harry Potter's own good. The pudding fell to the floor with a heart-stopping crash. Cream splattered the windows and walls as the dish shattered. With a crack like a whip, Dobby vanished. Thanks, bro. Yeah, thanks for creating all this bullshit and then just being like, fuck you, I'm out. Yeah, working. My work here is done. Wreaking havoc, then literally vanishing. It's good stuff. Which, which also reminds me of the second part of the politics of good intentions, which is you do a thing, you make a choice, you force people into a situation, and then you're not there to see the consequences of that situation. (laughs) Brexit. (coughs) Brexit. (coughs) Brexit. Yes. Well, you know, or any other kind of political decision in the last 18 months. I don't know. Right. Well, not 18, like nine months. Right. You know, it's, it's a, I'm just thinking, I'm living in the future, you guys, where Trump is impeached. That's what's happening. What a bright, what a bright outlook you have, Adriana. You're not one for optimism, but when you do, you really go all out. You know, when I do, I reach for the stars. (laughs) When you, when I have a glass half full, I reach for the stars. It's like, why the hell fucking not? 
<laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. It's sort of a mic drop moment and then a bounce. But that's the problem. You can't legitimately say you have the best of intentions if you're not staying to reckon with the outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's almost like this and idea d- of like, I will pray for you. Like, no, fucker. Like, come and give me five bucks when I need 20. And I don't know, like, because I need to eat. Like, I don't know. Well, and it's not like I can't really infer from this chapter how much Dobby seems to know previously, like prior to coming here about Harry's living situation. But like seemingly from what he's gleaned in the short interaction that they've had, he understands that like what he's doing is going to like he doesn't need to like he's basically just like I don't need to stick around to see the outcome because I already know what it is and it's going to be bad for Harry. But that's the desired outcome because, you know, it might be bad enough to keep him here here away from whatever big bad is taking place at Hogwarts but Dobby doesn't stop to realize or think like how bad it could possibly be at the Dursley household and part of that is his failure to understand that at school Harry has allies at the Dursley household Harry is alone yeah definitely definitely alone like the only thing that he has right now going for him at the Dursleys is his owl Oh my god, yeah, again, don't even get me started about Hedwig. It's a PETA situation. Like, somebody call animal control on the Dursleys. This is terrible. It's a winged animal, goddammit. Okay, okay. I I need you to operate at, like, 9.5. Right now, you're at 15. No, it's all out for Hedwig, honestly. (laughs) It's a 20. It's a 20 for Hedwig. Okay. So, as we're talking about Hedwig... (laughs) What character do you see representing the politics of good intentions? Um, For me, it's Harry, but it's actually not in the context of his interaction with Dobby. It's in the context of his situation with the Dursleys. Like, the Dursleys are bringing over a big client for Vernon, like, whatever money. And he's forced Harry to repeat, like, over and over again that he's going to be in his room. He's going to stay quiet. He's not going to make a noise. He's going to be invisible, right? And Harry has every intention of doing that. Like, in spite of everything, Harry is willing to have the good intention to not make a sound, to be invisible, so that Vernon can benefit from this situation. It's so twisted. It's so messed up, you know? Um, And whether he does that out of a fear of what Dursley could punish him with, or out of, I guess, more of a character trait that he's... I guess, I mean, I guess if it were me in this situation, like the inner Taurus bull would just be like, fuck this meeting. I'm going to do whatever I can to disrupt what's going down on the first floor. Um, especially after a summer of basically starvation. So I see Harry as exemplifying this politic. He really, because he really does have good intentions. Well, and also maybe his good intentions are laced with, you know, a a mentality of abuse. Oh, totally. I mean, Stockholm Syndrome much? Yeah, no, that's, he's definitely abused in more than one way, as we talked about last time. Yeah, like when he looks for acknowledgement from Vernon, you know, for his birthday and doesn't get it, and he still feels wounded at that, like that he's not calloused over enough to not yearn for love from this family. Yeah, 
Totally true. Or, well, or maybe even it, just acknowledgement. Yeah. I see the character being um, Dobby because, I mean, he's, he's the obvious choice. He's tr- he does something terrible to Harry thinking that he's doing it for Harry's well-being. He thinks he's doing it for Harry's safety, but he fails to understand the context in which he is operating. And also, oh, he totally. fails to understand that maybe the information he has from the household he's from, um, spoiler alert, the Malfoys, um, may be tainted. Oh, that's such a good point. He totally doesn't question uh, the reliability of his messenger. So it's like that the grandma, the grandma who watches Fox News and is trying to tell you that like George Soros is like you know, paying protesters. And you're like, no, grandma. If, <laughs> if not, I would have received a thousand checks by now. <laughs> but also, you know, like, grandma is like the house elf to Fox News. Mm, yeah. Both my grandmothers yeah. are dead. I'm talking about someone else. <laughs> R.I.P. grandmas. <laughs> you were not Fox <laughs> News watchers. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, no, I like what you're saying here. So, but do you think that that's also maybe tempered a little bit by, like, Dobby's acts of self-punishment in front of Harry? Oh, no, that, like, like weirds it, me out, dude. Like, I mean, I don't know what I would do in this situation, but, like, I wonder if he's, like, if he almost gains some ethos by virtue of, like, Well, and you can see Harry's, self-infliction. like, best intentions and being like, don't punish yourself, come sit, like, next to me, like... Let's just talk like normal people. And he's like, oh, my God, Harry Potter. No one's ever invited me to sit before. Yeah. 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 (laughs) It's context. All in context. I can't wait to get to the point where we can talk about, um, like, the politics of enslavement, particularly in how it relates to house elves and, like, the system by which, like, the mechanism by which they are freed. Like, so much to say. Oh, so, so much. So much. much to say. Oh, my God. I, I'm, I mean, But until then, alas. I mean, I'm not l- legit looking forward to the idea of discussing enslavement because I think it's a reprehensible politic and a reprehensible thing to think about another being being literally beneath you and in servitude to you and your family but also this is explained in such a profound way or even not even explained just shown in such a profound way that it lends itself to so much discussion yeah agreed and I, yeah, I hope I didn't sound like I was like excited to talk about that politic because I'm just like mahaha deprivation but like or depravity, but more just like it's a good, poly- it's a great, yeah, it's a great example. I mean, it's a good case study politic. in children's yeah. literature as to how you can portray something so awful and cynical, but also, you know, I- I'm just trying to like. Well, and I will also say that cover my bases here. Like, I'm not really looking forward to like talking about slaves, but if there's ever a place, it's this book to start. Well, and and I would also, like, this is nitpicking to you, but I would also say that, like, by the time we get to that discussion, we're squarely out of children's lit and, and like, pretty much in YA, pretty, like, resolutely. Oh, for yeah, sure. yeah. And, like, that doesn't, I, I and, that, and that doesn't change the fact that, like, it's still, like, a great vehicle. I just mean that, like, we get darker in each book as we go, um... The way that the way that we are introduced to certain things, like 
again, the way that we're introduced to house elves in book two of the series is going to look a lot different than book four, and it's going to look a lot different in book seven. Yeah, and I don't know how much of that is intentional insofar as um, exposition and how much of that is unintentional in terms of narrative developing and the books and the world becoming richer as the author builds more into it. Okay, guys, let's wind down and talk about the media that we've been consuming lately. Adriana, what have you what have you been what have you been consuming? Well, I've been consuming Stranger Things season two. Mm-hmm. I, I waited a very long time. I avoided spoilers like the plague. God, that must have been so and, hard. Yeah, no, I saw something like if I saw something about Stranger Things on Twitter, I just kept scrolling like I, I must have passed like a thousand tweets just like, oh, that has stranger. Oh, let's keep on Good going. Good for you. <laughs> I applaud you. I applaud your willpower. Yeah, it was great. We binged all, all of it in one day. It was fantastic. Oh, that's how we did it too. <clears throat> hashtag justice for Barb. Hashtag justice for Will. Hashtag justice for Eleven. Justice for, for Bob, dude. Oh my God. We haven't gotten justice for Bob yet. There's this like shirt shirt at Target that says Bob is the new Barb. That's so good. Oh my god, that's so good. So have you okay, like this I'm nerding out a little bit here, but there's another series that I would recommend for you after now that you've completed it. It's called Strange Beyond Stranger Things. And it's basically just conversations with actors and the producer and the like the Duffer brothers. Like they sit around a table in an attic um and talk about like behind the scenes of Stranger Things. Uh and where am I going with this? Oh, yeah. One of the things that was like a fun factoid was that um, Bob, the actor, um, yeah, he sent in a, a video of himself um, to be cast. Like it, what they didn't seek him out. He sent it into them like he wanted to be a part of this world. And what like so they didn't have a character planned for him. Like he was just like here's me, I'd like to be a part of Stranger Things, and they wrote him in as Bob, and he grew into this bigger role, which I just love, because his character, like, oh my god, so, it just, ugh, my heart. I know. I know. And also, Steve is great. I hated him last season. Love him this season. Steve is great. And John, but Jonathan is also still great. I just want to remind everyone in like the in like the love of Steve right now, which is like totally justified, okay? All right. The whole I'm I'm a but shitty boyfriend, hair. but a good babysitter, <laughs> like line of infamy. Like that's gold, okay? I'm not dissing Steve. I'm just saying that Jonathan is still great, okay? He was great in season one. Whoa. Well, he was creepy with that photo, but like, but again, I was gonna say, but like, again, creepy. Steve also was kind of a dick over at the movie theater billboard. But again, like, I don't know. I don't know how to, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna chalk that all to like, oh, boys will be boys. Like, it's reprehensible, both of them. Also, like, fair faucet hair products. Amazing. I'm I'm just I'm in love. Like I'm just Oh well and then Dustin at the prom. Oh my god. Uh, poor little baby. 
But then he got to dance with Nancy, so that was good. And honestly, I was still a little pissed at him, too, for keeping fucking Dart. I'm just like, seriously, dude? You're bringing down the squad. Yeah. So, uh, guys, sorry, but, you know, spoiler alert. We talked a lot about things that happened. (laughs) I guess we probably should have started. If you haven't seen Stranger Things yet, (laughs) there are spoilers. Spoilers ahead. So for me, spoilers ahead, because what I've been consuming... I I consumed Godless, um, the new Netflix uh, limited series. So good. There were some things that I wish would have been done differently. Like at the end, um, I really wanted to return back to LaBelle. I kind of like, sorry, I just didn't really care about seeing Roy Moore at the Pacific. Like that was a beautiful shot. Don't get me wrong. But like I wanted to return back to LaBelle. And those were the storylines that I was really invested in. But, oh, God, the casting, so good. Merritt Weaver, Michelle Dockery, although I will say it was a hard transition from Lady Crawley to Pioneer Woman, but I got down. She's down. Everything. Loved it. So good. I know. I saw you and Seth talking about it. That's a point of connection for Seth and us, I think, is Westerns. I grew up on them. Yeah, I I don't quite understand westerns. It's not like and I something I grew up on. And I don't think that I can actually explain it to you because I don't think that I can really explain my love of them to myself. I mean, in some ways I can, but mostly no. So who was the character in the Pacific? Roy Good. So that's um, you said Roy Moore. Oh my god! Hashtag politics. Oh, pedophiles! Oh, they get elected to office. <laughs> And have the whole fucking state back them at the behest of the 45th. Anyways, whatever. No, okay. However you want to cut this. Listeners, I meant Roy Good, the fictional character from Godless that shows up at the Pacific, played by Jack O'Connell. Also, the election hasn't happened yet, has it? No. Why? No, because you said, you know, elected to the Senate. And I was like, he has not been elected oh, yet. Oh, no, sorry, sorry. But, but the like... He's I, the projections. The projections. I know. The projections. I, know. I apologize. I'm not. I'm. I am not happy about. No. This, same. Whatever. Same. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Akio Politics. We'll be back next week discussing the politics of poverty in Chapter 3, The Burrow, of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, by J.K. Rowling. Until then, politics manage! find us online at www.akiopolitics.com. That is A-C-C-I-O-P-O-L-I-T-I-C-S.com, where you can find links to our social media and notes on each episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. Tell all your Potterhead friends about this podcast, unless you totally hate us. You can call and leave us a short voicemail at 915 996 1699.
This episode has been produced by Adriana Wilson and Aaron Barrio. Our logo was created by House 407 at www.house407.store. Our theme music was crafted by the very talented Kayla Sluka, who is also a badass photographer. Check her out at www.treasuredroots.com. also things to say she's like this this is what i think (laughs) it's like yes my mom withholds treats from me withholds foods because she says them fat (laughs) and this is just what she wants no one's withholding food from her i know i always tell my pets like no snacks as i'm grabbing a snack for myself (laughs) yes same 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 (laughs) 